I will be reading out of Colossians 3.18 through 4.1. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you, and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the, the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves that with that what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Thanks, John. All right, all right. Um, I'm two hours ahead or behind right now? Behind. California is two hours behind. So I will wake up about a quarter of the way through this message, and then it'll get really good, uh, is what I'm hoping. Uh, the, in reality, uh, what I found this week is that Wisconsin, not Wisconsin, wow, California, see, I'm going to wake up in a minute here. Uh, California is not as good as Iowa, is what I've discovered, by, by a power of about 10, to be honest with you. There is a haze in the sky in that, in that part of the world, and it's, you can't even see the blue of the sky. It's very strange and a little unpleasant, and there's a lot more trash on the side of the roads than there is here. So they do have the ocean, and that is good, but I, I swam in the ocean for the very first time in my life, and I opened my mouth, and it was filled with salt water. <laughs> and I realized that I don't like that as much as the lake water. So anyways... I won't, we won't be abandoning you to California anytime soon is the, is the point of that. Uh, and, uh, so, but we did have a really, really wonderful time. It, Ashley said it was momentous, and it was momentous. Ashley, here's a secret for you about her. She loves business meetings. She, she, it's, she loves, she should be a parliamentarian. She's like, that's, that's not how you do that. She's getting all worked up, and I have to, like, soothe her when I'm sitting next to her in business meetings. It's a lot of fun. Uh, no, but it was a really interesting time. We elected a new superintendent to, for our movement, a guy named Doug Clay, who uh, started out as a youth pastor in Iowa, so that's kind of fun. He's got an Iowa connection, uh, along with six uh, more representatives to our executive presbytery, which was kind of our highest body um, of elected officials. So there was a lot of good that happened, and it, as with any uh, meeting of a denomination or a movement, uh, there is both good, there are things you are both uh, encouraged by and things you uh, hope to be a part of changing, <laughs> right? And so we had a lot of that this week. So it was very, very good. It was very, very good. Um, and after this, so we got back at about nine o'clock last night, I believe, right? And then, so we, w uh, we got everything kind of squared away that we had been working on for Sunday during the week and last night, and then we went to bed. Uh, and now we're going to 
remodel some bathrooms after church. So I'm excited about that. So if uh, you were here and you weren't planning on helping, but you feel like you would like to, uh, we uh, will go head to lunch after church today, and then we'll meet back here at one o'clock and we'll start all of that work. All right. If you have a if you have a wheelbarrow, that would be helpful. <laughs> so bring your wheelbarrows, bring your stuff. We uh, uh, and we'll get her done. I'm excited to have a new kind of updated uh, bathrooms. All right. All right. So uh, today's passage is covering probably one of the more prevalent questions that any of us ask ourselves, to be honest with you. This question uh, sinks down into the core of what it means to be human, right? We all ask this from the very early age. We ask the question, who's the boss? Who's in charge? Who do I have to listen to? Who do I have to listen to versus who, when they tell me to do something, I don't have to do what they say, right? This is an important thing. Little kids ask this a lot. They are always trying to figure out who is the authority figure in my life? Who is the person that I have to listen to? Or better yet, who is the person that can get me popsicles, right? These, it's the authority. It's the boss in your life who can do this, right? It's the person uh, who pulls the strings, who is the authority, who you need to kind of buddy up with so that you can get, uh, so just you can get some kickbacks. It's, it's your boss at work, right, who determines how happy or not happy your working life is. Everybody knows what it's like to have a really good boss and then to have that boss leave and to get one in that is, we'll just say, less good, Right? And the experience that that creates in your life is not always a positive one. The person in charge, right, who the boss is, determines a lot, a lot about how we experience our lives. It determines so much. And Paul, in today's teaching text, is essentially shrinking down this big question of who is the boss, and he's shrinking it down within the context of the Greco-Roman home. In, in the city of Colossae, in this book of Colossians, this letter that he's writing to the Colossian church. He's taking this big, huge question of who is in charge, right? Who is ultimately the boss? And he's asking it within the context of the four walls of the average Greco-Roman home, right? He's asking it within the four walls of the home. And within the passage for today, Paul covers essentially these three groups of people. He begins by covering husbands and wives, then he moves on to parents and children or fathers and children, and then finally, and kind of confusingly to us because uh, we don't live in a world like this, he covers uh, within the context of the home, masters and slaves. And what you need to know about all three of these groups of people is that they did exist within the home, Right? He, he's addressing what is a kind of average home in the Greco-Roman world, uh, a homeowner, the person, who, uh, the person who is over a household. Often we refer to them as a patriarch because in this context that person was a man, and that's part of the reason that Paul is addressing men so readily in this passage. But it's important that we understand that what Paul is saying here is practical, practical wisdom, practical information for the average home in the Greco-Roman world. He is not addressing our context, all right? This is loaded with the context of what it meant to live in the Greco-Roman world. It's loaded down with 
all kinds of subtext about what it means to be a Roman citizen or to be a Roman wife or to be a Roman husband or to be a Roman child or to be a Roman uh, servant or slave within a Roman home. There's all kinds of cultural uh, additions that we need to keep in mind when we cover this passage because if we just kind of superimpose our own uh, household life over the top of the passage that Paul is talking about here, we're going to miss some things. We're not necessarily going to understand all that Paul is attempting to communicate to these people because he's communicating to a specific culture, to a specific time, in a specific place. And so, in order for us to really come to an understanding of what Paul is saying in this passage, and this passage, a sister passage in Ephesians, we need to look at the context. We need to look at some of the historical background behind what Paul is speaking into in order to really understand what he's saying. Are you tracking? There's some good head bobs, so I will continue. So, the world to which Paul was writing was all about power. It was all about structured power. And particularly, it was about patriarchy or structured male power. Everyone in a Greco-Roman society knew who was the boss of them. All right? Everyone knew and understood that question. Romans believed that they were the boss of barbarians or non-Roman people. Aristotle writes about this, about the uh, uh, Romans knew that they were the boss of all non-Roman people. And within, the, and within the Roman structure, every person knew where they were in society. They knew if they were a ruling elite. They knew if they were a common, uh, a, essentially a commoner. They knew if they were poor. They knew the, the entirety of the Roman society was stratified into these kind of almost caste system, if you, if you understand what I'm talking about there. It, it all made sense to them, and no one stepped outside of their kind of slot, Right? And what Paul is speaking to in this particular passage is the slot or the the power structure that exists within the Roman home. And what you need to understand about the power structures that existed within the Roman home is that the the man, the male patriarch in that structure, tended to be the ultimate authority. And when I say ultimate authority, I mean ultimate authority. The Roman husband or patriarch had ultimate authority, not just uh, to say... not just to say about where they spend their money or where they build their house, but over the very lives of the people that existed within the home. The Roman patriarch, the Roman man within the home, could even take the very lives of the people in the household if he deemed fit. Uh, Women had little to no authority in Roman culture. They could be divorced easily. They could be put out on the street, and divorce in that culture was not divorce in our culture. It, it was essentially a death sentence in many regards, or at the very least, it was, it was a sentence to simply being a beggar on the side of the road for the remainder of your life. A Roman father had complete and utter authority over his children. He was, within the context of the home, God. He could take that life, the life of his children, if he thought That was something he wanted to do. And within the context of the Roman home, the patriarch was the head over all the servants or slaves within the home. Very often these slaves were not cultural slaves. They they tended to be 
um, economic slaves. So these were people who had in some way, shape, or form gone into debt uh, in this society to such an extent that they had to sell their, their very bodies into indentured servitude in order to hopefully pay off their debt, but very rarely were they able to because the culture was set up in such a way as that those slaves or servants would be um, kind of indentured for life, right? It was, this, it was this terrible structure that kept people in slavery and in servitude. So within the Roman home, everyone knew who the boss was. The boss was the Roman husband. The boss was the patriarch of that particular home. And, the, and this patriarch, within the context of the, the cultural setting of Rome, was not expected to be nice. He didn't have to be nice. He didn't have to be loving. He didn't have to be anything he didn't want to be, in truth. He could dominate his family. He could do whatever he wanted outside of the four walls of, the, of his home, right? A woman in this day, if she was caught in the act of adultery, would simply be killed. It was expected that a man outside the four walls of his home uh, would take multiple lovers. It was not, it was not something that was just uh, done occasionally. It was something that was expected for a Roman man to do. These power structures were put together in such a way that people underneath the patriarch in the home were in many senses an oppressed and controlled people. They really and truly were. And all of this was okay in the Roman culture. All of this was considered okay as long as that man in that home gave proper respect and understood his position or his status within the larger Roman structure, particularly as long as he understood that the person that was allowing him to live as a patriarch of his home in a Roman city was Caesar. As long as he knew and understood that and he paid proper homage to Caesar, he was allowed essentially to do whatever he wanted. And so it is into this context that Paul writes to the Colossian church. It is into this context that Paul speaks to these three areas within the context of the Greco-Roman home in order to um, help them to understand how Christians, how Christians, how people who follow Jesus, who make the proclamation that Caesar, that Caesar is not Lord, but rather that Jesus is, should structure their lives. How should Christians structure their lives if they pay ultimate allegiance to Jesus rather than Caesar? And Paul begins his, this section addressing the context of the Roman home with this statement. Wives... Submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. As is fitting in the Lord. And this little phrase, right, this sentence that he uses here has stirred up a fair amount of controversy in our day. Particularly the word that, is, uh, that causes the issue is the word submit there, right? It does. Here's what uh, N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, uh, says about that little word. He says, His command to wives has come in, from, uh, come in for particular criticism. In many translations, the key word comes out as submit. 
And this conjures up in many people's imagination the image of a downtrodden woman, the victim of her husband's every whim, unable to be herself, to think her own thoughts, to make a grown-up contribution to the relationship. The fact that there are, are still one or two places in the world where women are treated like that is enough to make people suggest that this is what Paul intended. Nothing can be further from the truth as his parallel command to husbands indicates. In Paul's day, women did not have to be told to submit because no woman within the Greco-Roman world would have thought that she had any other option. This is true. But notice and keep in mind that what Paul brings in next in this passage is revolutionary within the context of the Roman home. It is a radical departure from anything that a Roman man had ever probably been told in any significant way. The Roman man believed that he could rule utterly and completely over his own home. And yet, Paul comes in and he says this to husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. What is Paul saying here? Love was not a requirement in the Roman world. Love was not something a man needed to do for his wife in the Roman world. It simply was not. Was, did love exist between husbands and wives in this, in this time? Yes, probably. It's natural that that would take place. But it was not the thing that motivated the marriage in the first place. And it was not the thing that kept the marriage together like it is today very often. Uh, marriage was a cultural thing, right? It was a, it was a cultural mechanism. It was, it was not primarily about love in the Roman world. It was, love wasn't the thing that bound a marriage together, and it was not a thing that precipitated a marriage. Love was an addendum. It was an extra thing that could exist between two people at this time. And for Paul, it is a requirement it is a requirement. Now, he goes into greater detail on this. This passage in Colossians has a sister passage in Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 31, where Paul gives a fuller explanation uh, of what he says in these passages. So uh, it's helpful if you want a little bit of context on what, Paul, what exactly Paul is saying here that you can go to that passage and look. But what Paul is actually saying to husbands is revolutionary. He raises the bar so incredibly for what a husband is expected to do within this context that it's hard for us to understand. Pa Paul is proposing here a far more equal and balanced approach to marriage than the world had ever seen in the entirety of its history up until this point. In many ways, this is a tremendous leap forward within uh, within the Christian home at this time. The Christian home at this time was the most progressive home in the world in terms of the ways in which men and women related. This tremendous leap forward is precipitated by Paul because Paul sees uh, Jesus as the ultimate authority in the world, right? If you've been with us for the last few weeks, we've been going through the entirety of the book of Colossians, and it's helpful to take uh, one of the great things for me about reading 
uh, an entire book or, or preaching through the entirety of a book is that we're able to see uh, both some of the arguments that Paul has made earlier in the book, and we get to see some of the ways in which those arguments and ideas influence the, the further arguments. Very often when we read the scriptures, what do we do? We, we read something like, wives, submit to your husbands, and is this fitting in the Lord? Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And we take that passage out of context and we use it to beat people over the heads with, right? These are the types of things we do when we read Scripture out of context. But when we read Scripture in context, when we read this passage within the larger context of the arguments that Paul is making throughout all of Colossians, what we, what we see and understand is that Paul believes that because of Jesus the whole authority structure of the world has been in some real and true sense rewritten. That Caesar is no longer Lord, that Jesus is. And Jesus is a Lord who fundamentally orients himself in a different way towards people than Caesar does. Right? Caesar lords his authority over people. Jesus serves, sacrifices, and dies for people. And yet it is this Lord who serves, sacrifices, and dies for people that is the Lord of the cosmos, that is, in Colossians 1, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, that by him all things were made in heaven and on earth. He is the one who is before all things, and in him all things are held together. This is the God to which Paul is referring. And if this God is the actual authority in the world, if this God is the actual boss, it reorients the way all the other bosses in the world need to function. It reorients all the other ways that anyone in the, their current context has authority, needs to interact with the people over whom, they over whom they have cultural authority. It transforms the way that husbands are called to relate to wives. It transforms the way that a husband is called to love his wife in the mode or manner of Jesus. Paul is radically transforming the ways in which men and women relate in the Roman world. He is giving a woman dignity and hope. He is instilling institutions within the church that no longer allow, that no longer make any room for, for abuse or dominant behavior, that no longer make any room uh, for women to be abused, that no longer allows any space for any of that. Paul is in effect saying, Women are no longer property. They are people, equally loved and valued by God. So valuable, in fact, that they deserve, as a byproduct of who they are and who created them, they deserve respect, honor, and love. And that all of those people within the home who have power, technical, cultural power over them, right? Because this is what the Roman world said a man had over his wife. All of those people who had power over these lesser people, particularly in this passage, a woman, needs to understand that their primary responsibility is no longer to simply lord authority over, but rather to serve sacrifice and submit, in some sense, to the other person. You see, the word here is wives submit to your husbands. But it is equally as val valid to say in some real and true sense, husbands submit to your wives in love. Because that is the manner, the force with which Jesus 
loved and served the world that he came to. Does this make sense? So when we see this passage that can often be a little contentious within its cultural context, it takes the edge off a little bit, right? That word submit that is so often, that so often bothers people that springs up in a way that they don't like, the edge of that word is taken off. Does, you see that, how that can happen a little bit? But we need to understand what Paul is saying here in order to really come to grasp with how God would have us to interact with each other if you're a married man or woman in this room. But Paul doesn't stop there with husbands and wives. He starts with that relationship, but he moves on to fathers and children. Now, this is a question, as I said earlier, that we ask from the age, from our, a very early age, who is the boss? My son, Elliot, asked this question a lot. He says, who's, how did he ask it the other day? Something along the lines of, daddy's the boss? And mommy's the boss, right? And we said, yes, we're both the boss. And, he know, and like I said, he knows that because the boss is the person in the house who gets him fruit snacks. And, and so it's very important. It's very advantageous for him to identify who the boss is because the boss uh, frees up all of the sugar, right? And Paul is saying to fathers in, in, within the context of the Roman home, that they, given the natural authority that exists there within the context of the Roman home, that they should no longer see their children as simply um, human beings to be pushed around to, uh, to accomplish the agenda of the home. That fathers, in some real and true sense, are called to love their children. They, they're called not to embitter their children or allow them to be discouraged. And children are called to obey their parents as everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, what you need to understand here is that this injunction, this, the, the, this phrase, for this pleases the Lord, means also for children within the context of the home that, uh, that it's important that what they understand, uh, that God longs for them to honor their parents, right, to listen to their parents, to do those types of things. But they want it to do within the context of what is fitting to the Lord, right? So even a child within the Christian church who was being asked to do something by his father, by the patriarch of the home, that was outside the bounds of something that the, a Christian was supposed to do, was not obligated to obey in that regard. Does this make sense? And so very often in the Roman home, a child would endure um, a lot of abuse, a lot of abuse. And they would have to endure that as a, as a child within the context of that home. And what that often creates is a kind of embitteredness, right? That often creates a kind of, um, a, 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 a type of pain that is so natural and in our world is so prevalent. But Paul tells parents to not create that feeling in the child. That the way in which they conduct themselves as a parent is important because, because, as he, as in the same circumstances with the wife and husband relationship, the father is not ultimately the boss over that child. You see, the parent is, the parent is not ultimately the boss of that child in the Christian home. The boss, the one with ultimate authority, is Jesus, right? Paul wants to reorient parents around this idea 
and that their responsibility within the context of the home is to model, is to be Jesus's representatives to that child. Children are still expected to obey their parents, yes. I don't think that one will go away. At least I hope it doesn't. But there is this, there is this um, real and true responsibility that the parent uh, has to step in under of understanding that they are responsible to God for their parenting and that their parenting should take on the flavor, right? It should take on the color of the character and purposes of Jesus. That is what it should look like. And finally, Paul moves on to this third category that he talks about. And he talks about this one in a little bit more uh, depth. He talks about the relationship between masters and slaves. Now, this passage and a couple others like it have been abused in our culture. This passage in particular has been used in the history of American society to make arguments for the biblical validity of slavery, right? This passage has been abused horribly in our world. And so it's very important that we come to a, a, a pretty solid understanding of what's being said here, because if we don't, there's all kinds of ways that these passages can be abused and pulled apart. Does this make sense? Now, what Paul is talking about here, like I said earlier, is, uh, more, is a slavery that is more related to, uh, to the institution, uh, economic institutions than it is to cultural or, or uh, national uh, identities. You see, in the, in the first century world, any fairly uh, well-to-do Roman home had multiple slaves or servants, and these slaves or servants had different roles within the home. Um, sometimes they managed the money of the home. Sometimes they uh, took care of the home. Sometimes they um, were like, if if it was a home, if it was a homeowner or a patriarch who had a lot of land, maybe he managed um, the livestock for that for that homeowner. Maybe he managed a business. Um, this slave uh, or servant probably did had some responsibility within the context of the home. But what's interesting here is that Paul does not say, uh, masters, let all your slaves go, right? And this is a problem for us because we believe that slavery is an abomination, that it's something that God hates. And so why in the world does Paul not say, masters, you can't have any slaves? Why does Paul not say this, right? Well, you'll be happy to know that Paul does say that exact thing <laughs> in other parts of Scripture. But here, for some interesting reason, he does not address that particular issue. And the question we need to ask ourselves is why? In, in the whole book of Philemon, is a, uh, or Philemon, is about the release of a slave, right? That's what the, entire of the, the entirety of the book is about. But why here does Paul not address this particular issue? Why does he not go after the heart of this abomination that is slavery? Well, what Paul is saying here, I think, is quite interesting. And I think we need to see the rest of these injunctions within that same context. Paul is saying that in the world you occupy, within the context of the culture in which you live, you are to orient yourselves differently, right? That... Uh, that he's acknowledging the reality of the world in which these Colossian Christians live. He's saying to them, in essence, here's where you are, right? If you're, if you're a servant within a house, if you're an indentured servant, that's where you are. And you might not, at this very moment, be able to get out of that situation, right? If you're, 
if you are a husband and a wife, you are a husband and a wife within this wider Roman culture. That's where you are. If you're a parent and a child, that's where you are. You're, you're set within this wider Roman culture. And because of the ways in which this wider Roman culture are uh, debasing to humans and, and, and to the extent that uh, much of the that was much of the things that happened within the context of that culture were sin. Paul is saying, you're in the middle of this, right? You're dealing with this. You're struggling with this. It's not a good thing, but, but in the middle of the thing that you're dealing with that is not a good thing, how ought you to act, right? This is the, this is the question that Paul is answering when he's talking to masters and to slaves. This is the question that he is answering. And what exactly does Paul say to slaves? He says, servants or slaves, the word is doulos. He says, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it uh, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord, for the Lord. Now, Paul does not tell this servant or this slave to do what they're doing for their master, right? He says that in some real and true sense, whenever you work with all your heart, you are working for the Lord, not a human master. So he's saying to a servant or a slave who is stuck in a situation that maybe in that, maybe in that particular moment they can't get themselves out of, how are they to conduct themselves, right? Paul is in essence saying this is not a good situation, it's not a situation that Paul endorses in other parts of Scripture. It's a situation that he decries, right? But if a slave is caught in a situation where they cannot for the moment get out, this is Paul's advice to them. That work for the Lord, work for the true boss, work for the true master, not for your earthly one, right? And that in, in some way, as a Christian, within that context, as you work for the Lord, as you, as, you, um, as you exemplify the character and nature of God in this uh, debasing and dehumanizing uh, uh, structure that you find yourself in, this office that you find yourself in, as you work for the Lord, you will come to a fuller understanding of who God is, and you will receive, he says, an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. What Paul is saying is that there is more going on here than you can see. And as you work for the Lord within this context that is not good, and that in other places, Paul says, we need to get you out of, right? If you're stuck in that context, what you need to do is understand that as you work well, to the best of your ability, you are not working for that earthly master who might be oppressing you. You are working for the Lord. And then, finally, he moves on to masters. And so to masters, to, to patriarchs, to the ruler of the home, he says, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you have a master, right? Paul is reminding these people, the people with the power within the context of the Roman home, that they have a master, that they have a Lord, and that that Lord and that master is different, right, is different than what they thought. Last week, we looked at how, we looked at this idea that Jesus was the true king, 
that he was the Lord of the world, that, that he ran this thing or runs this thing, and that we are all called to live our lives in the light of that reality. And Paul is calling back to these masters, remember who your boss is, right? It comes across almost as a threat, <laughs> right? Remember who your boss is. Because in some real and true sense, you will be held to account for what you do, the way in which you treat people. Paul is really doing something quite subtle and quite revolutionary in this passage. For both for fathers, for husbands or parents and masters, he's essentially saying, you are not the boss. You might think you are. You might live within a culture that says you are, but you are not the boss. Jesus is. And you are called to live your life like he did. And that you will be held to account for the way in which you exert your power and authority over your home. Right? This is about justice or judgment in some real and true sense. That, that the one with power and authority has to, has to keep in mind that they uh, will be held to account, that they are responsible in some real and true sense for the way in which they conduct their home. But a bigger idea than that even is this idea that Jesus is the boss, that Jesus is the one with all the authority, and that Jesus is the one that determines how we treat people when we have authority. So for us, the question is not necessarily who is the boss in our homes, right? That's not necessarily the question. The question is, are we living like Jesus? That is the question. Paul is not writing to these people to remind them of who the boss is, right? In terms of the, their, cult, their culture and their context. Paul is not writing to the husband to remind him that he's the boss and that he better make sure that that wife submit to him, right? That is not at all what Paul, what Paul is saying here. Paul is writing to remind the people with the power within the context of these homes that they are not in fact the boss, that they answer to someone higher than themselves, and that they are responsible for the way in which they treat people over which they have authority. And in our day, in our day and in our context, how do we engage with this passage? Well, we have authority, don't we? In, some, in whatever sphere of life you find yourself, whatever job you might have, whatever responsibilities have been brought to bear in your life, you have authority. You have authority over children as a parent. You have authority over people as a boss in a working environment. You have authority and you are called to acknowledge the same thing that Paul says that the, the, the authority figure within the Roman home is called to. You are called to acknowledge that you are not the boss, that Jesus is. And that if you live like Jesus, you will be about the business of laying down your life for other people in the same way that Jesus did. You see, Jesus is the one with ultimate authority. Paul has been... Uh, stating and reaffirming this reality throughout the entirety of Colossians. He's been saying, Jesus is the authority. Jesus is the boss. Jesus is the one through whom the world was created. Jesus is the, invis uh, the, the uh, image of the invisible God. And he chose to die and lay down his life. 
That's what he chose to do. And he made the thing, right? And so if Jesus is the boss, if he's the ultimate authority, then all lesser authorities under him are called to that very same activity, that, that, that activity of, of submission, really, of, of love, of, uh, of the laying down of our lives for other people. You see, we get caught up on the, in this passage. We get caught in this passage in a way that Paul never intended us to be caught in this passage. And we begin to ask the question, okay, so Paul says I'm the boss, right? Or who says who's the boss? And he says this is the boss. And so now I get to be the boss, right? And people use passages of scripture like this all the time. They use it to their own advantage, right? Well, the, 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 the Bible says, da, 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 da. And so now you got to do what I say, right? Paul's intent with this passage is completely different than that. Right? It's completely different for that. Husbands and wives within the home are called to acknowledge the ultimate authority of Jesus and to live out their relationship towards one another in that very same way. They're called to live out that relationship towards their parents in that very same way. And for us in culture, if we have any authority in our, in our, in our work or in our city, right? If we, have any, if we find ourselves with any modicum of authority over other people, right? Our responsibility is not to lord that authority over them. It's not to feel really good about the fact that we have that authority so that we can make other people do what we want them to do. Our responsibility is to acknowledge that the king of the entirety of the world, rather than making everyone do what he wanted them to do, chose to lay down his life in, in an act of love to show us all the way to life. This is what the king of the world did. And it's our responsibility to lead in kind, in the same manner and way that Jesus led. We are called to live. We are called to lead in that way. And if we do that, if we find the, our lives in that place, if we, if we understand who Jesus is within that context, if we, if we exert authority in the same way that Jesus exerted his authority in love and service for others, if we don't get all caught up with who's in charge here, who's the boss, right? And we all, as the church, equally acknowledge that I'm technically not the boss, that Jesus is, and that I'm called to live like him. Then a lot of the, the power structures of our day that have been, that have been constructed in order to, for, to make people feel powerful or for people to feel significant or, or in order for them to feel like strong, all of those will kind of melt away. And the church is this institution that is supposed to see power and authority as something to be laid down for other people, as opposed to being something that we're called to take up for ourselves in order to make people do what we want them to do. This is what power and authority look like within the kingdom of God. And this is what Paul is communicating to the church in Colossians. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we want to be people who acknowledge, above all, that, that you're the boss, that you're the one who gets to tell us how we are to live our lives, that you're the one who gets to model for us how power and authority work in your kingdom. And so this morning, God, we ask that you would help us to do that. Father God, that you would see those places in our hearts where we see our, the, the power or authority that we have as a means to make people do what we want them to do. You see those places in our hearts where uh, we want uh, power and authority so that we can make our wives do what we want them to do 
or so that we can make our children do what we want them to do or so that we can make our employees do what we want them to do. And God, we ask that you would root that out of us this morning, that you would root that type of arrogant and anti-Christ approach to power out of our hearts and that you would help us to be a people who rather than seeing power and authority as something to be lorded over people, we would see it as a vehicle for the laying down of our lives, for the, for the uh, service and sacrifice that we can do of our lives on behalf of other people. Jesus, uh, we know that we don't naturally do this. We know that humans naturally long and desire power. We know that we long and desire uh, the ability to have people uh, listen and respect us. But God, we want to fight against that this morning. We want to be people who lead like Jesus, who, seeing the example of Jesus, chose rather to serve and to lay down our lives for people rather than uh, taking up power and authority as a means of making them do what we want them to do. Jesus, will you speak to all of our hearts? Will you find that one place in our lives where maybe we've had an improper orientation towards power and authority? And would you help us to exert your kingdom-oriented love and authority in the world? Jesus, we love you, and we ask that you would help us to love you more. We pray it all in your name. Amen and amen. Go today in the grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And anybody who's helping with the bathrooms, we'll head to lunch, and then we'll be back at one o'clock. All right? All right, thanks.